Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky by Stephen Crane. This was first published in McClure's Magazine, February 1898. Uh, along with, a, uh, in that same issue, was uh, this a serialization of Anthony Hope's Rupert of Hentzow, which is a uh, sequel to, or I think a sequel, or the sequel to Prisoner of Zenda just for context. <laughs> um, uh, there's um, you know, stuff in there about Abraham Lincoln and Civil War reminiscences. And it is the February issue. So that's Lincoln's birthday. Yep. Um, and he was, uh, he, was a, he was a popular figure for magazines of this period. Um, it's almost like people uh, of the era when Lincoln was assassinated are reminiscing about those days, you know, and there's sort of an interest um, in the same way that a few years ago people would be really interested in, um, you know, the 80s or the 60s. <laughs> they just sort of, like, get nostalgia for the period and want to know more about it and read about what was going on in their youth. It's kind of a reflective thing. Um, you know, I think there's more than that going on here. Jesse, you mean because the story it, we're discussing today, The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky, mm -hmm. can be viewed in part as a story about the civilization of the West. Absolutely. That is to say, the civilizing of the West and how America is changing from a mostly urban, uh, well, from a certainly a lawful society to the East. Um, and pushing those boundaries, uh, what's included in lawfulness, pushing it to the West, the, the knitting together of the nation by the railroad, which is mentioned in the first paragraph of our story, mm -hmm. is in fact what the Civil War did. Mm -hmm. It knit together a nation that was fragmenting. So I don't think that uh, it's just a matter of nostalgia finding this story in this issue. I think there's a whole mood um, that comes to mind in those days about what it means for America and where America has been and where it's headed. Absolutely. Um, in fact, that's kind of where I was going. There's, there's this weird phenomenon. You know, I, I think this story was recommended to me by a friend of mine in Australia. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. And so I tracked it down and I found the original publication with illustrations, although for some reason, I don't find the illustrations very interesting in this, even though there's a lot of them and they're pretty good. Um, because the story does the illustration for us in a way that many stories don't. Um, we've done one other Stephen Crane story on this podcast, and that was Manacled, which was about a mm -hmm. uh, muse uh, not museum, a stage, the uh, theater theatrical stage which catches on fire. And a actor who is manacled on stage, um, experiencing the horror of the fire, um, and it's a, it's a very powerful story, very strange. Um, but uh, when you go looking online, this story is one of those ones that is very popular um, in teaching English. 
I guess it's because it's public domain and Stephen Crane's a famous name and people need stories. By this stories. story, you mean The Bride Comes to Indeed. Yellow Sky? The Bride Comes yeah. to Yellow Sky. So if you go just, you know, type that into Google and, you know, you're looking on YouTube and you're looking around the internet, there are thousands of tutors who will tell you who the characters are and what a story summary of this is and all that stuff. And, and, and the Wikipedia entry on it is incredibly detailed in a way that it's like people are, it's basically to help you do your homework because some teachers assigned you the story. Now, the problem to me is, as with many of these, these sorts of situations is that, uh, there are right answers to the exam, um, that you need to extract, even if that's not what's important about the story. So to me, in reading this story again for us the second time, I was noticing things that were there in the background that sort of disappear uh, as you're reading it the first time. What I'm trying to say, basically, is that this story is not what it appears to be. Um, it, <laughs> it is something else. So the way it's described on Wikipedia, um, it's uh, people are saying, uh, here's an example. The short story, The Bride Come, Comes to Yellow Sky, is written to show the vast incline of society to, for the West. Um, and then it says, clarification needed, somebody says, right? Um, and then Paul Sorrentino, a published essay writer, <laughs> wrote about the correlation between the name Jack Potter and the political figure, blah, 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 blah. So... Um, People are overreading the wrong things in this story, in my view, and underreading what it does as a structural product. It has four chapters, I believe. Um, they're not titled, but they're there. And it has scene changes, but it's actually it's it's almost like an impressionistic painting. What I'm what I'm saying is that although people say Stephen Crane, Crane is a real uh, is practicing realism as a kind of uh, writing art form here, I'm not sure that that's the right way to understand it because almost everything that is anticipated in this story is um, there as a part of a show rather than to execute a plan <laughs> the plan is to present and I, this sounds very bizarre but I think I can defend it uh, once we get into the details that all being said um, we might want to talk about what actually happens in the story since we're not going to read the whole thing aloud so which is a shame because oh. uh, it is a, it is a wonderfully written story I'm particularly taken with um, the way in which Crane uses simile. Oh, yeah. um, The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky is in four movements. It's a story set in West Texas, presumably contemporary with its publications. So we're talking about 1898. It's an era in which uh, Texas is becoming civilized. The first movement begins, the great Pullman was whirling onward with such dignity of motion that a glance from the windows seemed simply to prove 
that the plains of Texas were pouring eastward. That's a lovely, lovely image. Mm-hmm. Um, that is to say, it is so stately a train that instead of feeling the train hurtling westward, it seems as if the planes were hurtling eastward, which, as I was suggesting before, sets us for recognizing that Texas is becoming more like the east. That's what's going on. And of course, if you've already laid tracks, you're not in the wilderness anymore, right? And you Mm -hmm. have to have laid tracks for you to have the Great Pullman pulling itself out. In this first section, chapter, as you call it, of the story, we meet a newly married couple who've just returned from San Antonio. We're not told exactly how this couple got together, but judging from the fact that the the woman, who is never called anything but the bride, um, seems to be uh, underclass, that's a quote, a word from the, the story, and clearly has cooked and, attend, and expects to continue cooking. Um, it looks as if the, the guy from uh, who's bringing her back to Yellow Spring, uh, excuse me, to Yellow Sky, um, either has a mail order bride. Or, I mean, in so, they don't know each other all that well, um, but they've both decided that marriage is a good thing. He's taken her out of um, a lower economic environment, and she has given him companionship. And we see them sitting uh, quite nervously next to each other, uh, and the other passengers in the, the car um, are amused by them, and the uh, the porters... Um, are able to bully them, that's again a word mm-hmm. from the story, um, without them even realizing they're being bullied because the black serving men, the porters, um, are already more sophisticated in their travels around the country than are uh, this man and the bride. The man's name is Jack Potter, and that's part of what was alluded to in your reference to the Wikipedia article, who is Jack Potter? I think the Wikipedia article gets it wrong, by the mm-hmm. way, but that's another matter. And so what we find is that they both, so clearly uh, Jack has, has let his bride know what's going on. Jack is the marshal in Yellow Sky. He represents law, and therefore he's an important person. And he went ahead went to San Antonio and got himself a bride without telling anybody. I mean, anybody can get married to anybody they want, but he knows that he has a position in society and <laughs> really he should have let them know, but, but he didn't. And it's because he was a little embarrassed and he didn't want them to come out with their local brass band, which is apparently... <laughs> pretty awful. He just wants to be able to have a wife and go back home. That's what we find in the first part. In the second part, we go back 21 minutes before the train is supposed to arrive in the station, and we have a group of men in the uh, local saloon, and they're talking about uh, things having to do with the uh, the nature of the economic life of uh, Texas, although 
it's not made explicit. The person who's talking is a drummer, meaning a traveling salesman. He's engaged with uh, some whites, I would guess, from the fact that there are two others who are described as Mexican and say nothing. So we, we get to see class structure, economic structure, mm-hmm. racial structure, ethnic structure. But someone comes to the door and says, Scratchy Wilson's drunk and has turned loose with both hands. And it turns out that this, the only other named character in the story, is a man who is the last survivor of a gang that used to ride by the Rio Grande. They were bad hombres. Uh, but now he's alone, and he's the nicest guy when he's not drinking. But when he is, he's spoiling for a fight. So they're quickly barring the doors and the windows and everything like that. And uh, we know that Scratchy is on the rampage. Now, that brings us to the third section. We switch to Scratchy's viewpoint. And with Scratchy's viewpoint, uh, or he becomes the character we're focused on, it's third person limited here. When looking at Scratchy, we see that if the whole town is is uh, hunkering down in relation to him, and he's looking for something. He's just he's firing into the, the windows of his friends, and he's firing into doorways, and you know he's just trying to find somebody to have some trouble with. The fourth section, he comes upon Jack and his bride. Jack is hurrying to get to his house without anybody noticing it, that he has a bride with him. He turns a corner, and there's Scratchy. And Scratchy wants to fight. Jack, pull your gun. I ain't got no gun. What do you mean? Nobody's ever heard of you not having a gun. Well, if I'd known you were going to be waiting for me, I'd have a gun, but I didn't know. And I don't have a gun because I have a bride. And Scratchy, as if he had never noticed there was another person standing there before, said, you're the bride? <laughs> you know. And Scratchy thinks, well, my God, he's got a bride. And he's not armed. Well, okay then. I guess I'm not going to have a fight. He sobers up and walks away. And that's the end of the story. Yep. <laughs> so it's 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 clearly a comic story. Indeed. Told in four told in four sections. First we get we learn about the young couple as they are trying to bring their idea of propriety and marriage to Yellow Sky. Then we see what life is like in Yellow Sky. Then we see the one remnant of the more lawless past of Yellow Sky, and then we see a confrontation between those lawless folks and the folks who would be lawful. And it comes out, actually, I think, making a kind of implicit argument that maybe a lot of those rough and uh, lawless figures of the past were only rough and lawless because civilization hadn't reached them yet. Not enough brides had come along yet. There weren't schools and, and things. All we had was jails. But, you know, as it keeps encroaching, well, you know, maybe it's better to lay down my lawless ways and go sober up. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of not only a, a funny story, but I think a hopeful one, especially in 1898. It was only three years earlier than that that Frederick Jackson Turner issued his very famous uh, lecture that became a book, The Significance of the Frontier in American History, and pointed out that in the 1890 census, 
by the definition of frontier being contiguous counties of below a certain population density, by 1890, the frontier had finally disappeared. Mm-hmm. And here we are, 1898, a story about what happens at the disappearing frontier. Yeah, and I think people get really caught up in that in that analysis. The, the fact that they're going west, the fact that uh, they get they're, they they have plans and they're going to do this thing, um, and he's the last of the gang, and and that settles them down. <laughs> I mean, I think that you can overread it as a as a piece trying to make a point about the West. And I think that that's absolutely happening in the story. But to me, it's a funny story. <laughs> and it's funny yeah. in the sense that it it's all anticipation. He's on the train, right? With her. Who's she? He's his wife, <laughs> right? Everybody's looking at everybody else. Everybody's looking at them. He's looking at his own clothes as he put his hands on his knees and looks down at his clothes and is surprised to see what he sees. She's looking at her clothes and wondering if people are looking at her. And this is a very odd way of writing because if this is realism, it should be more plain (laughs) in a certain sense. When I noticed is that everybody's anticipating everything and then we as the readers are anticipating everything because they're anticipating and these chapters the changes well when we get to town what are people going to think of the bride <laughs> right oh that's a setup and then oh scratchy wilson's on the loose oh that's a setup right and then do we go back to that bar no <laughs> Do we go back to the people on the train who were looking at this couple who had got married? No. Does the fight that we anticipate happening when Scratchy Wilson's going? We're told so much about how how he just gets a uh, a little drink in him and he pulls out both pistols and goes around town looking for a fight, spoiling for a fight. Does that happen? No. <laughs> Everything is subverted. It's it's so interesting because to me. It, it's almost like a literary equivalent of an impressionistic painting. And impressionism is, you know, it's it begins a little bit before this story. It continues to uh, around this story as sort of its high point, right? But the reason impressionism became a thing is because photography became a thing. Once you can capture an image of people as they actually are, we think by film, then the artist's job is no longer to capture that person in the same way. The artist's job is to do something else, or is in reaction to the fact that this thing can be quicker captured. And so, in an impressionistic image, you don't see what the eye captures exactly. You see what the feeling of the eye is capturing. And and it's a sort of a unreal version of a real thing, a, a real experience. So um, I, I want to make... Sorry, I, 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 what do you mean by unreal? So it, This feels quite... It, it, it's vivid to me. Yeah, I've got two terms for you. One, one it, it's absolutely vivid, and it's vivid in a visceral way. 
So one of them is self-conscious. So uh, our hero, <laughs> Potter, the uh, marshal, who you know is the town hero, we know this later on, but he also respects the town and thinks of his position, is self-conscious of his own being on the train. He talks about how they're going to go and get a $1 meal. Ooh, a fortune, right? How he ta talks to his new wife about the decoration of the train. They look out at the, at the other, uh, at, at, as the plane is going by. But the author's doing this too. It's not just the characters who are having this sort of hyper-real experience of reality. The author does it to us as well. So there's a kind of um, hyper-real rather than uh, unreal experience of the reality of this Texas train. We are inside the head of not just the characters on the, you know, the two the couple on the train, but also the porter. And I'm anticipating what the people in the uh, uh, the um, meal carriage are going to be thinking about them sitting at the table and eating that expensive food. And it's it's what it's how you are when you're on vacation on a new place, or it's how you are when you're getting married. You're very hyper attentive to details. And maybe a little self-conscious about the clothes you're wearing. And then we have this sort of unreal experience. And I, I, I'm reminded of this time in a class. I had a student tell me that she, she suffered from something called derealization disorder. And I was saying, oh, really? That's interesting. And she was telling the whole class. So it wasn't, I'm not like sharing something that was supposed to be secret here. But what's so funny is, if you know what derealization disorder is, it is the fact that you don't think that where you are seems real. <laughs> so I'll just read the description. Deep, oh, sorry. I call it derealization, also called depersonalization um, disorder involves a persistent or recurring feeling of being detached from one's body or mental processes, like an outside observer on one's life. Depersonalization and or a feeling of being detached from one's surroundings. So we are invited to feel what Jack Potter feels. We sympathize with Scratchy Wilson, even though he's obviously an unsympathetic character in a certain sense. Um, and yet his name is not very threat threatening, right? It's not like Bulldog. It's Scratchy, which is a cute word, right? And when he finally puts away his gun at the end, right, it's not his right-hand gun. It's his starboard gun. <laughs> so the author is inviting us to sort of be playful in his beautiful description of everything, everything is full of color. The 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 shirt, the maroon shirt that Scratchy Wilson wears, was made by some Jewish women in New York, and the reason he purchased it was because he wanted to show off. <laughs> and so, why are we told about this? Because it adds to the effect that Stephen Crane is going for. This isn't a story about plot as much as it's a story about the experience of experiencing plot. And that, I, I think, think, is so interesting. 
I do think that it is about the experiencing of plot, the, uh, the structure of the four different viewpoints, the four different chapters uh, helps make that easy to, uh, to discuss because we can compare and contrast one with the other. I think that the uh, maroon cloth, that uh, the maroon flannel shirt that Scratchy is wearing is uh, described in some detail um, because that detail is in keeping with the other parts that mm-hmm. I wouldn't minimize. You know, we have the two Mexicans who don't speak up much in the bar, and we have some Jewish women on the Lower East Side of New York who make this um, make this shirt. So suddenly in Yellow Sky, a town that's so small that it exists as a only as a place for the train to take on water, mm-hmm. right? It does nothing else, really. Uh, has no, it itself is a nexus for all sorts of globalized forces that are slowly making their way across the country. And um, it, it's not just to make it vivid. The, 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 the shirt doesn't look any different if you know where it was made and the origin of the and gender of the people who made it. But there is something else you know more about. Uh, I would not, in fact, um, I like your word impressionism a lot. I don't think of this as particularly realist. No, it's not very this, realist. Uh, I, th- I, I think of this uh, because the characters are clearly uh, comic. Um, that is the three main characters, uh, the Jack, the Marshal, his bride, and Scratchy. Because they're clearly comic, I think of this as more in one way, Dickensian. However, rather than think of this as comedic rather than realistic, I think your word impressionism is right on, Jesse. I see this as an early example of modernism. And if we read the other, all of Crane's work is in the public domain because he died in 1900. Mm -hmm. If we read other of his work that is most famous, like The Open Boat, or the Red Badge of Courage, or Maggie, a Girl of the Streets, we see a kind of recognition of what's going on in the psyches of the people who are doing what is being reported that reflects a a subtlety of just what you were pointing to, impression. It's not just, you know, I see this, it is this color. It's highlighted because it becomes more important. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, I would point out, rather than the maroon cloth um, that uh, enwraps Scratchy or the black formal clothing that we see Jack Potter has put on for his wedding, we have one other color that comes up. Now, the entire story is in blazing sunlight, Mm -hmm. as I read it, at least. Mm -hmm. Right? It's... It, it looks to me like Monet's haystacks. Yellow you know, sky. I mean, it's, it's, and yellow sky is the name of the place. And it turns out that that word yellow occurs absent the name of the locale. But that's clearly important because it's in the name of the locale. The only other time that word yellow occurs is in one line. One line. Potter is confronted by Scratchy Wilson. There was silence. Potter's mouth seemed to be merely a grave for his tongue. Wonderful similes. Mm -hmm. He exhibited an instinct to at once loosen his arm from the woman's grip. 
He's just met Scratchy Wilson as he's turned a corner, and he dropped the bag, which he had been holding, to the sand, presumably. It's yellow. As for the bride, her face had gone as yellow as old cloth. She was a slave to hideous rites, gazing at the apparitional snake. (laughs) Suddenly yellow is the color of cowardice. Mm -hmm. It's the color of fear. Mm -hmm. It is the color of civilization that cannot confront something new. It is the mythological problem that challenges us in the garden. Yellow is, in fact, not gold in this story. The yellow sky that hangs above us, and the sky is very important because Scratchy keeps looking at the sky and saying, won't anybody come fight with me? Mm -hmm. Fires bullets off into the air. The sky is yellow. It's not gold. It's that there is something old and permanent in the human world that is now going to show up here. And the question is, can we survive what makes us afraid? And we can, because Scratchy isn't, uh, isn't an outlaw anymore. No. He's just the nicest guy who lives by the Rio Grande. And I would point out in mythic terms, Rio Grande simply means big river. Mm-hmm. And we, get, we notice it a number of times. That is, the narrator tells us, and we pull up as close to it as possible in order to take on water at yellow sky. So the river is there. And as with all rivers, it reflects the passage of time. Mm -hmm. That's where we're told Scratchy Scratchy Wilson lives. To get so much into a story that could look realistic, but in fact takes, takes... 19th century comedy and moves it to the era of social awareness and depth psychology. Mm -hmm. This, I think, is a brilliant step and a a delightful, funny step along the evolution of modern storytelling into modernism. Mm Mm-hmm. I I, I think I'm just going to read this passage because it it's so important. This is, again, it's right on the first page, uh, second and third paragraph. A new married pair had boarded this coach at San Antonio. Notice how we're invited. Right? The, man fa- the man's face was reddened from many days in the wind and sun, and a direct result of his new black clothes was that his brick-colored hands were constantly performing in a most conscious fashion. What are they performing? From time to time, he looked down respectfully at his attire, like he's surprised to be in those clothes. He sat with a hand on each knee, like a man waiting in a barber shop. The, the glances he devoted to the other passengers were furtive and shy. This is a brave man, right? He He's the sh- town marshal, and yet he's a figure of comedy here. The next paragraph, the bride was not pretty, nor was she very young. She wore a, bl- a dress of blue cashmere with small reservations of velvet here and there and with steel buttons abounding. And I'm I'm not uh, unaware that the reservations are uh, 
in Texas, too. Um, <laughs> she continually twisted her head to regard her puff sleeves very stiff, straight, and high. She's surprised to be in this clothing, too. <laughs> they, they embarrassed her. It was quite apparent that she had cooked and that she expected to cook dutifully. How is this apparent to anybody? Well, apparently everybody on the train knows. Uh, wow. The blushes caused by the careless scrutiny of some passengers as she had entered the car were strange to see upon this plain, underclass countenance, which was drawn in placid, almost emotionless lines. And then they have this banter about how beautiful the train is and, oh, they're going to spend money. It, it's, it is very derealization. It is very self-conscious. They are self-conscious, and in us reading it, we become self-conscious. Stephen Crane was absolutely batting way above the regular fiction fare that you would find in a magazine like this. It's astounding to me how amazing he... I mean, it's a plain story, and yet he's doing this, like, ultra-high-level psychological comedy that has an effect upon us that often, I think, in reading it, people don't understand. It is humorous. <laughs> it just feels like, ooh, it's, it's very fancy. But that's not the point. I think it's a combination of, look at what I can do, but also, isn't it funny? <laughs> It's a kind of embarrassment comedy. And that's really odd. And very interesting. When you do it that well, of course there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.